when you put your feet on this land and you meet the people that are caring for the animals and you see what we're doing, I don't care what perspective you come from, whether it's hardcore vegan, hardcore uh, propagandist, hardcore fake news, it's going to transform you because somewhere in that hardened exoskeleton, you have a soul and this touches your soul. And uh, that that never happens. It's a nice perspective. Yeah, I want to believe. But um, I think in retrospect, we're just are realizing that uh, a lot of these people have mental disorders. Yeah. <laughs> It's true. Welcome to Where Hope Grows, a podcast curated to tell the inspiring stories of land stewards, ranchers, and farmers who are on the front lines of the regenerative revolution. Interweaved with wisdom inspired by Mother Nature, these journeys are testaments to her capacity for healing ourselves, our agricultural systems, and our planet. Welcome back to another riveting episode of Where Hope Grows. We're getting back to some basics, back to the heart and soil. One of the reasons that I started this podcast was to document and to celebrate stories and experiences that I've shared with my wife, Katie Collins, out at Rome Ranch. And we call these episodes stories from the ranch. We always dive into a topic, whether it's our experiences with bison. Typically, those are nightmare experiences. Um, although there's plenty of wonderful things to celebrate, we always go back to reflecting on some of the most powerful emotions and working through those traumatic experiences on this podcast. So it makes sense that today we decided to talk about our greatest lessons, which were hard taught lessons typically on the uh, dovetail of an extreme catastrophic failure, but that's okay. If you're one of those people that believe that if you don't do something right, well, it's not worth doing it at all, that couldn't be further from the mindset that Katie and I approach life and approach co-creating with mother nature. The longer we manage land, the longer we're out here at Rome Ranch restoring the ecosystem in awe of the complexity of Mother Nature, the more that we realize we don't know shit and we're just doing our best to tune into something that is greater than us, something to which we belong, something that we come from, and that is the earth. So I would dare say that if you don't do something right, it's not worth doing it at all. It's actually worth doing it again and again and again until you finally get it right. That, my friends, are the characteristics of tenacity, of grit, of determination, and of will. Now, when I reflect on Katie and I's intrinsic gifts, so these traits that we were born with that have allowed us to live meaningful, powerful, beautiful lives, I... For myself, I can't say it's good looks. I can't say it's my mental capacity. Keep in mind, I was in a hardcore band for a long time. I used to headbang for about 10 years, circle bang. I played football, many concussions. I'm only, I'm only operating on about 5% of my cognitive capacity on any given day. But if my gifts can be represented as the moon, then Katie's gifts are clearly represented by the sun because she shines bright and beautiful 
and powerful at everything she does. Now, I will say that when we come together and combine our powers, if we had a single superpower, that is the power of actually doing something. I mean, taking action, taking risk, going out there, getting our hands dirty and figuring shit out. We're not philosophers. We're not theorists. We don't consult. We just get our hands dirty every day and co-create and interact, listen to our own instinctive wisdom, look at the blueprint and the architecture of nature and do our best to very humbly fit in and play a role in that system. So without further ado, this episode reflects on many of the greatest mistakes that we now refer to as our greatest lessons. And we hope you can enjoy this wisdom as a listener, as someone who aspires to be a farmer or a rancher or co-create with nature, or just someone who likes to chuckle at other people's sorrow and misery. This episode is like driving by a car wreck on the highway and slowing down and staring. Enjoy. All right, Katie Collins, you're in the new studio. It's awesome. What do you think about this place? It's pretty sweet. You know, whenever you told me you were getting like a little podcast studio situation, I'm not going to lie. I thought it was kind of stupid. <laughs> but you're here. But I'm here I'm and inspired. it's kind of nice. I like it. And now it's even more reason for people to check out the YouTube channel and the videos that we're recording live so they can see the beauty, the love of my life, your beautiful face on mm. camera. <laughs> so special. It's so nice. So um, nice. You get to see the view that I get to wake up to every morning. So um, thank you for making the trek all the way down to Austin from Rome Ranch. During ACL weekend. During ACL weekend. You're we crazy. just picked the worst weekend. But this is a really, these are some of my favorite episodes because we're going to talk about stories from the ranch and we typically dive pretty deep into a topic, and today we're going to talk about our biggest lessons learned, which are also some of our biggest mistakes that we made starting a ranch. I feel like we did an episode like that. No. Now that you... No? Never. Oh. Absolutely not. Maybe just we discuss these things frequently. Yeah. So it feels like. Maybe we've talked about this before. Well, the spirit of this episode specifically is... If we could have like our younger selves, if we could travel back in time and come into the dreams of our younger selves and whisper these most profound lessons that we've made and we could avoid anything that we've done, these would be the things. And I don't want to, I don't want like that put a negative connotation on these being our mistakes because they are mistakes, but they're not regrets. I think we can own our mistakes learn from them. Obviously, it helps us grow. And, and you and I always believe that failure is building character. And so with that being said, I have no regrets. I just see this as growth opportunities. I'm not going to lie. I do have a couple of regrets. What? There's a couple that I just like, when I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm like, oh, why would we do that? We can't go back. Oh my gosh. I thought you were the one, you taught me no regrets like 10 years ago. I had so many regrets and you're like, no, none of that should be a regret. That's just a character building. Okay. So maybe I'm saying that I just, sometimes I reflect too heavily on some of these. Yes. And honestly, this just has to do with your perception because, um, when we listened to Peter and the Wolf with Scout and Wren. Oh, and my favorite part. My favorite part is when the duck and the bird are talking and the bird says, 
what kind of bird are you if you cannot fly? And then the duck says, well, what kind of bird are you if you can't swim? Exactly. And so it's just such an amazing uh, consideration of perspective. And so we are seeing this as moments that helped us become who we are. But at the same time, if there are things that make you cringe in the middle of the night, I know there's so many people that are aspiring that have plans that are manifesting to buy a ranch or to co-create on landscapes. And so I hope this episode serves you some purpose or at least serves you as some guidance to avoid some of the silly things we've done. So silly. They'll make you stay up at night. We, um, so we had a mentor early on named Chad Lemke, good old Texas boy. And he had a bunch of good one-liners, but he was kind of helping us get started And one of the things he used to say was, I made more mistakes that ended with zero, 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 zero. So my consulting fees that I'm charging you actually saves you money. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. And so we're not really big consultant people by any means. Feel like for the most part, they're kind of scam artists. For sure. But if if anything is true about this uh, podcast, we're not charging anyone consulting fees, but we hope that this does save some zero, 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 zeros. I hope it saves you some nights awake and um, saves some animals' habitats. Yes. Um, Okay. So let's start off with, uh, I'll just throw one out there and we can riff on it. But when we first bought the ranch and we brought the bison out, We thought it was really important to train the bison to eating alfalfa cubes, which alfalfa is like this hyper palatable, high protein, sweet grass pellet. And uh, we used it as a really important tool to teach the bison how to move through new pastures and how to pay attention to us as managers. Um, Really important for rotating and our grazing plans. But we got a little bit carried away with it to the point at which we were like, hey, This one bison now can eat out of our hand. And keep in mind, when we first got the bison, they were like these cutie pie one-year-olds. Oh, they were so, yeah, like not threatening. Very little, very cute. I think they, yeah, they were one and they were so sweet. And And then we had this one that was... Just, she had eyes of an angel. Her name was Poppy. She was, I feel like we might have talked about her before, but Poppy was a true like soul that we had encountered in another lifetime. And um, I, all, all you had to do was just get down to her level and put your hand out. Well, not all you, but all I, all I had to do was get down to her level and put my hand out and she would just walk right up and Take a little nibble. Oh my gosh. I forgot all about that. You took it to a whole nother level. I was talking about like feeding out of the mule. Oh, okay. Out of the vehicle. But yeah, Katie would get out in the pasture, walk 50 yards away from any opportunity to save herself if things went south and get on her knee and feed this bison. Yeah. And so I guess the context here is everything sounds good. You're like, this is so cool. We have this one sweet bison that you can hand feed and many others too. They're all really young. But what happened in the blink of an eye is that the bison matured. They double, tripled in their weight. Um, so now we're not feeding cute little babies. We're feeding Huge. Tanks. Yeah, I remember one day Cecil stuck his head in the mule and we all like shifted as far away as we could. And I was like, oh, no, his his horns are going to get stuck on the edges of the frame. I mean, and he's going to flip this shit over easily. And we didn't really realize that 
bison, even though we were somewhat thought we were training them, I think more so they were training us to require and to expect those alfalfa cubes. And uh, bison, it's still a wild animal. It's not a domesticated species like cattle, sheep, goats. And so to me, bison are like bipolar, where one moment they can be your best friend and then the next moment, they can just kick your ass for absolutely no reason. There's always a reason. Okay, there might always be a reason. Maybe they're hangry. And <laughs> the fact that you're even just tempting them with sweet-smelling alfalfa. But the the script flipped. We thought it was, like, so cool. And then in the matter of two years, it became a problem. Like, terrifying. Because, like, even when we were coming into the pasture through a gate, the whole herd would sprint over to us because they thought they were getting fed. Mm-hmm. And so it was it became a problem. It was hard to open and close gates. Yeah. It was dangerous and super sketchy because when we had guests out to the ranch, they would literally crowd up right next to people. Yeah. Public tours. Like I felt like one, I felt like it wasn't out of uh, the ordinary for an animal to jump onto a tour trailer full we of people. We did have that happen. <laughs> yeah. One time we made people sit on hay bales in the trailer. Yeah. And the bison were eating the hay from under their butts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we made some <laughs> some really stupid mistakes. So that was the the we are so lucky that we didn't have uh, an anybody get hurt or yeah. a vehicle get flipped over. Yeah, because it kind of came down to that point. I remember a couple of times towards the end where some of those big bulls, uh, they were like, um, you know, like Moses parting the Red Sea, where they they were just standing in front of the vehicle and they were like, "Thou shall not pass unless I get fed," and. You'd be like, well, shit, I don't really have anything, big boy, big Cecil. And they would just keep walking up closer and closer. And then they would start rubbing their head on the back of the mule. And you'd be like, that's just freaky. And then you'd feel the back tires of the mule get off the ground. And you're like, I think he's communicating that we better feed him. <laughs> and so it became such a liability. We're so lucky that we didn't get flipped over. But um, I think if we could do it differently, we certainly wouldn't. We would have... Cube the animals to train them to move through gates, but never allowed them to eat out of our hands. Or out of a non-moving mule. Yes. I still am tempted every now and then. You know, I don't know what it is about like the human brain that we desire to have a connection with an animal species. But every time that who I assume is Poppy's uh, baby, I guess you want to be a ba- so much of a baby anymore, comes up to the mule. I'm like, oh. I know you. Yeah. <laughs> and I any I just wanna I just wanna give him a little treat, you know? Just wanna <laughs> touch his little nose and say hi. Just not smart. Don't do it. Don't do it. I always felt like getting a little bit of bison slobber or drool or even like mucus from the nose on your hand was was like uh all the cold and flu prevention I needed for the whole year. <laughs> it was like a, a inoculation of my microbiome and I just wanted it. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't know if that's been scientifically proven. There's other ways to go about boosting your immune system, immune system mm-hmm. that doesn't involve the potential of getting gored to death. So that would be a huge learning lesson and consideration. Um, certainly not on the top, but I think that was something that we wanted to mention. I'll move on to number two. And this would be allowing the land to rest a little bit longer than we did. We were so eager, you know, like so passionate about Alan Savory's work, about the Savory Institute, really recognizing the keystone importance of having ruminant animals as a part of an ecosystem. Contextually, 
where we were acquiring so much farmland that had been chemically managed, intensively mechanically managed. I mean, degraded to the point at which all the topsoil was lost. Bare soil, as far as the eye can see, when we when we bought the property, in our minds we were like, we got to get animals out here pronto, um, which was it made sense. But contextually, I don't think that was appropriate. I think we should have waited at least a year or two for some of the secession levels in nature, some of those early forbs and weedy species to serve their chemical and mechanical purposes on the soil and then eventually bring the herd out there. Yeah, I think I would have brought less animals out. I mean... I don't know if the timing of when we brought them out was as bad as the amount of animals that we brought out. And then just like they quickly started breeding and it became very overwhelming very quickly. Yeah. The old farm fields. I mean, it was really like putting a herd of bison on on a field on that was cement. like, yeah, the apocalypse had happened. Yeah. Like scorched earth. Yeah. And that was super low fertility, nothing that was out there for them to eat. So we had lots of bare soil, which created... um a whole slew of issues in the summer when the bison are literally standing on soil that's 120 plus degrees. And then we were dependent on the inputs of hay, which we thought hay is fine. Hay is carbon. We're going to bring carbon into the system. The system has been extracted of carbon. This is a good thing. What the bison don't eat, they'll trample into the soil. It'll be litter. It'll start covering soil. And then their manure, of course, will be like this microbiome inoculant super packet that will get cycled into the soil. Um, but, we, but what we didn't realize is that system, we were so dependent on bringing in hay and we didn't pay attention to the quality of the hay we were buying. Yeah. So we were importing pesticides and herbicides, things that we like refused to bring onto our ranch in any other format we were bringing in through hay. Um, and part of it was, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if you would say it was ignorance or negligence. Um, it was just like, we didn't know what we didn't know. And also access to hay in Texas is pretty limited in terms of what you can get. You know, like well, the hay that we want to get now is like, we want no spray, diverse hay that has seed heads in it. Um, and the hay that you can typically buy is, is a monoculture sprayed hay. Yeah. Our neighbors are selling you get a premium. You get a premium for one species of hay. Yeah. As like, opposed to a native diverse. When you buy hay and you, you ask, you start asking questions, the, the seller, the first thing they tell you, which is supposed to add value to it, is that this hay has been sprayed. <laughs> and it's so contradictory to our overall outcomes because, yeah, those chemicals that you're saying are in the hay, well, where are they going? They're not just evaporating into the atmosphere. They're going into our bison, poisoning our animals, and then they're also going into the soil, which, again, poisoning all the microbes that we're trying to return to the system. And so although, I mean, it wasn't just like dire consequences, it was just sort of an oversight. I mean, I think it just slowed the regeneration process down. Like, I think the net, you know, balance of it was more positive than negative, all things considered. But it was a stupid, I mean, we could have just made a bigger impact faster if we would have not had that silly oversight. Yeah. 
if, if it was a perfect world and we had unlimited resources and maybe you could do this with cattle, sheep or goats, it would have been amazing if we could have brought in like a thousand bison for a week. Yeah. And then just no room in animals on that property for a year. Yeah, that would have been amazing. That would have been the magical spot. That would have been just so incredible. Um, the other thing that I just, just to circle back and by on. By a headache. week, you mean more like three months. <laughs> yeah, short period. And that's that's mimicking the natural co-evolved um, relationship with bison in our landscapes. That's They would have been here for a couple months, grazed really heavily, uniform distribution of manure and impact and soil aeration, all the good stuff. And then they would have left and then the land would have had that most magical ingredient in the formula of regeneration, which is the rest. So I think lots to learn there. Going back to hay, because this is just something no one really thinks about. Um, we roll out hay too. So when I say roll out hay, we don't put a bale out in a field. We actually used the tractor or before we had a tractor, we used to do this on foot. Oh my God, which really like, I have this image in my mind of us pushing hay and all of that dust and pesticides and herbicides literally circling us. <laughs> That's my point. Yeah. That's where I was going. How it did we not? so fucked up. We were so uh. toxic. Uh, and I just remember, yeah, handling hay in any situation, I was just, afterwards, I would sneeze all day long and my eyes would burn all day long. And you'd probably snore all night. Yeah. People would just be like, oh, you just have a grass allergy. It's like, do I? Do I? Or is this a glyphosate allergy? Or did I just get fucking poisoned? Yeah. Thank you, Monsanto. Um, so, you know, there's there's other ways to do it. But yeah, even just starting out, I mean, really thinking about how I can get good organic hay or cover crop hay or native grass hay. Uh, these are some some really creative opportunities for entrepreneurs to source this stuff and to get it cheaper than what others would consider premium hay. I remember one time you you were driving down the highway and you were like, damn, those people's fields look awesome. Look at all the diversity. You know, like they have a lot of bee bomb. They just had like a lot of species that you wanted. And you literally called them and were like, what are y'all doing with this field of yours? Have you ever considered haying it? And they were like, no. You're not cutting the grass, you mean? You mean cut my grass, shredded? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> and you were like, I'll pay somebody to come and hay it. And if I can, you know, whatever. And y'all just worked out a little deal and we got some sweet hay. And we ended up, now we have bee balm on our property and some of the other species that they had. It's yep. awesome. Yeah. And we also have really good resource on other organic hay um, grown in the area. So reach out to us if you're looking for some. We can connect you with the right people over at Southwest Farms. Mm. He's the man, Lee. Uh, okay, so. Don't take it all. We need it. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> Do you want to you wanna talk about one of yours? Um, you know, the, the one that keeps me up at night, honestly, is um, when we first bought the property. So Taylor said that we, you know, we had a ton of farmland, but we also had and still have um, about half the property is rangeland. And so it's it's just been grazed, never conventionally farmed, definitely overgrazed. But um, the way that it was managed had put it into more of a shrubby um, ecosystem than a savanna. And, you know, the central Texas hill country um, would have traditionally been more of a savanna ecosystem. Um, and so we looked at it and we were like, how can we make this more of a savanna? 
And Taylor kind of picked some of his favorite trees and said, if it's not these, cut it down, pull it out, make it go away, go bye-bye. And it's... And it's beautiful. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. Kind of looked like a golf course. Or, or it park. looked like a park, like a state park. Yeah, like a well managed state park. Like it was, the part of the park where the where you would have a picnic or right. by the ranger station. Right, but it didn't look like a functioning ecosystem, and it's still not a functioning ecosystem because we took so much of it away. Um, and it that's what breaks my heart. It 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 hurts my soul to think about how much habitat we removed from the rodents, little bunnies, birds, insects, um, and just the diversity that we removed from the area. We ended up leaving just, you know, like whatever trees we liked and what shrub species we liked, which wasn't many. And um, it weakened the whole system. Like the system requires the diversity that we, and we, Took it away. Yeah. And in my ignorant defense, I, um, my brain, I was saying, hey, well, we, we do love wildlife. It's important, but we also want to grow more grass. Like we need to grow more grass, which will feed more wildlife, which will feed our bison, which will sequester more carbon. But it was all backwards. We weren't looking into like the, the context of what our ecosystem was hewn from. And one of the things in retrospect that's really heartbreaking that we've been thinking about more often is that we eliminated not only a lot of species diversity of plants, but we removed the freaking age diversity. Yeah, the age diversity. And that's just something that I feel like we just recently started like putting in our brain is the importance of age diversity. We talk about diversity importance in terms of like species. You need like ton of grasses, a ton of shrubs, a different, a lot of different types of trees and different animals. But like age is a type of diversity that's so critical in an ecosystem too. So now all of our trees are going to die at the same time. Like they have a limit. Mm-hmm. They're not going to last forever. Yeah. When I think about scary age diversity, I think of like, um, maybe pickleball or pickleball is bad example. Cause now young people play pickleball. But okay, uh, like a nursing home uh, where all of these geriatrics are living out the last, you know, couple of years of their life and they're just surrounded by other mm, uh, less independent people with comorbidities, similar age, similar dysfunctions. And it's like when a young person walks into that room, the room is just lit up with so much joy. They are so excited to see any class of human age that is younger than 60 years old. And so it's just like how much joy youth brings into a community. I think we can't discount that or discredit that in an ecosystem too. It's really strange because I was thinking about it um, in terms of like an ecosystem, a tree, let's say you have like a hundred, an entire savanna of a hundred year old trees. Great. But those trees have things to offer for the younger species of trees and that in the younger species of trees have something to offer the older species of trees in terms of like, you know, the, the, the system is so complex. There's like wisdom that is happening underground through those mycorrhizal fungi systems Absolutely. and all the things. Um, and so I don't know. It's not just like the young bringing in the joy. It's the 
the old bringing the wisdom or the strength that is there too. I don't know. It's true. It's also connected. And so that's just something that breaks my heart that we didn't really think about diversity of species, diversity of age. And a lot of people, they're just so eager to get started when they purchase land. I remember we just tend to focus on the things we didn't like. Yeah. And I think that's human nature. Like you go out somewhere and you're just looking around and you're like, shit, I wish like these undesirable species are not, we're not here. And you recognize that the system is moving in the wrong direction due to previous mismanagement. So you're, you're basically like, we simulated a catastrophic fire Mm -hmm. or something with the mechanical clearing we did. And now um, we're trying to biologically keep the system intact through obviously diversity of plants, but also through animal impact. So grazing our bison in a way to which they can influence the species and the age of the trees and shrubs that are emerging. I think one mistake Aside from just the sheer clearing and removal of species, um, I think what we did with the removal of those things was also a mistake. Um, you know, there was such a huge opportunity to utilize the the branches, the bark as either mulch or or using it to um, protect other trees or fill it in as like, I don't know, I think you'd call it like a litter shield, mm-hmm. use it as a litter shield, use it as a water slowing down system. Yeah. Check dams. Check dams. Yeah, I mean, there were be, just so could many. Have been beavers. We yeah. could have like used our little beaver inspiration, spirit animals and made little dams. I mean, there were so many down. great uses of it. I mean, just a pile of dead trees itself could have been habitat for thousands of species. And we just said, nope, we don't, it doesn't look good right there. Burn that yeah. shit down. We could have started a mushroom farm. A hundred percent. Just inoculated these piles of trees. So yeah, now, now, I mean, it's funny because we, we burned it. We released that carbon into the atmosphere. Holy shit. And I remember justifying it like, we are releasing a ton of carbon into the atmosphere so that we can grow more grass than that's grown here in the last 80 years. So we can sequester more carbon. So it was like this, this, uh, this math uh, formula. And I, I suck at math. So I, I think you were also a little obsessed with like biochar at the time. You're yeah. Like, oh, biochar. Like, let's spread the ashes. Let's spread the minerals. Which is great. Which is cool. But um, the, the funny thing is now, like when I see carbon material from trees that is that is like the currency that is gold you know there's been multiple times where i'll be like riding my bike or running nearby and i'll see someone mulching a big ass tree that got struck by lightning and i'll call someone and and try to get them to drop off all that mulch at our place Mm -hmm. and then we spread it and i'm like addicted to it i wish we had more mulch i wish we could drop dead trees from airplanes and helicopters into our big fields. That was interesting. So the pendulum has swung. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we're, we're, and I think all that carbon material, the way that trees work is they cycle leaves, especially on these deciduous trees where seasonally they drop, they dump a ton of carbon into that critical root zone, which covers bare soil, which keeps moisture, feeding those roots, keeping the tree healthy, creates that fungal network, and then it all breaks down and feeds the soil. And so we basically removed that whole cycle from the system. Mm-hmm. But now we have the opportunity, if we can put our minds to it, to start 
bringing back that carbon, carbonaceous mulch material and starting to spread them under trees. So yeah, land clearing, just slow your roll. Just don't do it. You think you want to do something. Be I productive. do love cactus removal still. Just do push-ups instead of getting on a tractor and bulldozing things. It's true. I think, and I think in general, hand doing things, it A, slows you down and it makes you really think like what's worth the effort. Um, and it also gives you like a different perspective. Like when we, when we did a ton of cactus removal in the winter, it was so awesome to see the habitat that was these cactuses. You know, there were, there were bunnies, there were lizards, there were black widows, there were quail, all these things that would utilize these more established um, cactuses. And so, you know, we didn't take all of them. We made sure that there was plenty left for plenty of habitat, but yeah. the whole field didn't need to be cactuses. Um, yeah, I feel like what you're saying, we, we, we formed a relationship with those cactus, cacti, because we were hand removing so many of them yeah. that we understood them better. Yeah. And um, I think that when you sit in a tractor or a skid steer and you put your your cover on top of you and you put your headphones in and you have air conditioning blowing at you, like you don't even get the dust. You don't even get anything from a mechanical removal. I mean, it is, it's like a transactional relationship. Yes. And doing things by hands gets you jacked. So jacked. You can take your creatine. <laughs> <laughs> you do your, your, uh, just go to GNC and Go over to the lumberjack section mm-hmm. and they're going to set you up real nice for doing some manual labor out on a ranch. Okay. So I would say that's that's a really good lesson. I definitely wish we could go back in time on that one, mm-hmm. but we can't. And these are learning opportunities and moving forward. We're just, uh, we reset everything, but we're laying as good of a foundation. On the bright side, we do have more biodiversity of grass and wildflowers and brassicas and forbs than we've ever had out there. And we can actually utilize it to graze our bison. I mean, before it was so dense, they literally couldn't get through anywhere but the the roads. Yep. Um, okay. So another hot topic is uh, vaccination protocols because uh-huh. here's the deal. We have these bison. We love our bison. There is an animal welfare component to doing what's right to keep your bison healthy and making sure they prosper. And obviously we don't ever want an animal to be sick or suffer, but Katie and I are going into this thinking bison are the descendants of these wild animals that have been roaming this continent for hundreds of thousands of years, longer than we've been here exponentially. And so to think that this wild animal needs modern medicine to thrive, that's just bullshit. That can't be right. And the other consideration starting off with a little bit of skepticism, healthy skepticism, is just recognizing that Vets, just like many medical doctors, they're a part of the big pharma and big ag system. That's what they know. Those are the tools they know. And so when it was time to do our you know, annual roundup of the bison to check herd health, to check pregnancy rates, you really depend on an honest veterinarian to tell you what to do because they are the experts. And yeah, year one, it was just like, here is this list of, I mean, there had to have been 10 to 12 vaccinations. And the vet was like, if you don't do this, your bison will die. And uh, it just didn't feel right. The gut check didn't feel right. But, you know, kind of just outsource that decision 
because we had so many decisions to make. We couldn't become experts at everything. And so we, uh, we vaccinated pretty aggressively for year one, year two. Yeah. I, I mean, that was a huge mistake. Um, it, I don't think, I don't know. I don't know why we let somebody else sort of do our research for us. I mean, I think that much like some people live their lives and, um, they're make medical decisions. Now they just straight up go to their doctor and say like, you know, it's best for me. But, um, you know, like it's just so ironic, you know, like we made dis- decisions about our own medical care and health, um, what feels like decades ago now to say like, these people actually just met me and they don't know shit about me. I'm going to do my own research and it's really up to me to make sure that what is being suggested is actually right for me. And so, you know, we, when we had Scout and Ren, like we didn't go to the doctor and say, what vaccinations do they need? Like blindly. I, uh, we did extensive research, hours and hours and hours and hours of researching every single vaccine that was out there to I- identify if we were willing to give it to our children or not. And we didn't look at our animals as our children at that time. And so we were like, these vets, they are the experts. We're just going to default and go with what they say. Yeah. And the, another ironic thing, especially if you're raising bison or bison, um, it's such a small industry. I mean, there's something like 20,000 bison that are harvested annually in North America, where there's 125,000 beef cattle processed a day in this country. And so the size of the herd is obviously different. The size of the industry is different. So a lot of the medical research that's being conducted, no one's really looking at bison because there's not a lot of money to be made. And so when animals are getting these extensive um, vaccination schedules, they're basing it on cattle, cattle, which right. no research has ever been done. Cattle and bison are not the same animals, by the way. Very different. They come from complete different lineages and have different needs. Um, and so that's just more that we learned. You know, I, I remember that first year when we just drop the pharmaceutical bomb on these animals, the pregnancy rates were like terrible. They were very bad. And just our like dung beetle counts and uh, microbial movement that you could visually see was very low. Yeah. You you might want to explain why that was. Uh, I mean, yeah, we're, you know, things like uh, anti-parasitic medicine, which would have been on these schedules, uh, gets absorbed into the animal, gets absorbed into the rumen, impacts the microbiome of that living animal. And then when they uh, cycle fertility in the form of manure on the ground, any dung beetle, any kind of microbial, tiny little critter that interacts with that patty now gets poisoned. Right. And so we were not only nuking our bison, but we were nuking the land and there's all these unintentional consequences. And so, you know, we, we, we kind of made a commitment every year we are going to go lighter. Less, less yeah. and less and less. We're going to dip our toe into the water here. We're going to remove like one or two vaccines or medical pharmaceutical treatments of these animals every year. And we removed every single thing uh, this last year. And our vet, the last, the last thing he was saying that we needed to vaccinate for was leptospirosis. And we were just like a little bit 
confident, a little bit arrogant, like, hey, we've removed like 12 other recommendations of yours and these animals are thriving. They're like in perfect form, great fertility, thriving out here, kicking ass. Um, and he was like, all right. And so we removed that one this year and uh, we had some serious issues. We had, so when a bison gets leptospirosis, they have uh, spontaneous miscarriages. Yeah, I don't remember, I didn't do my research on, on leptospirosis as I should have, but um, my understanding of it is, is it's sort of like Europeans coming in and exposing Native Americans to chicken or to smallpox. smallpox. That's sort of what this it's a bacteria, right? Yep. And this bacteria is, it, it has come in from non-native species and is exposing bison. And we just didn't really take that into consideration that, you know, like that they're being exposed to non-native species. Yeah. So it doesn't matter that they're native animals. And that they're hardy that and badass. That have co-evolved to this landscape for millennia. Like the ecosystem is broken. Like we have so much exposure to non-native species. Yeah. And there's other things specific to bison like a malignant catarrhal fever. That's a big one. You can't vaccinate for that, but we do now take special consideration. That's something they were never exposed to historically. And so, um, yeah, I think maybe the, the pendulum swing from one extreme to the other, but certainly um, we are going to continue to treat the animals to prevent them from uh, getting leptospirosis year over year. That's just going to be a part of the protocol now. Yeah. Uh, but I'd say yeah. we learned that a hard way. Yeah, it kind of sucks. Yeah, we had 40, what, 40? We had 45 pregnant animals and we had nine babies. Nine babies, yikes. Yikes. Yeah, and then the goal is to grow the herd. The grow is the goal is not necessarily grow the herd at Rome Ranch, but when we have these calves, we sell them to other ranchers so that they can start raising bison. Um, they can start influencing more land uh, with regenerative practices through these innate capacity of this amazing animal. At the same time that it's really sad that we only had nine babies and that all those mamas lost their babies, it's also, it feels like appropriate with the current climate that we were facing the last two years. You know, we've been in a crazy drought. None of the other wildlife are able to have breeding uh, or I mean calving success rates like we can when we're like artificially feeding and watering these animals. So I feel like it's kind of appropriate. Yeah, it was, a, it was honestly a little bit of a blessing. Yeah, I didn't want 40 more, five more babies. We could not have uh, handled that. That would not have been right not for no the land. With no rain. Right. Yeah. Anyway. So, um, again, just getting to know your veterinarian and doing research and honestly trusting your, your own instinct and your own intuition. Uh, but I still think that a veterinarian looks at a ruminant animal as the same ruminant animal, whether it's in a confined animal feeding operation, eating a diet that is not biologically engineered to, they see that's a cow. And then, the, and then if there's a, a cow that's on a holistically managed regenerative system, they see that as the same cow and they treat them the same way, where obviously it's easy to, to make the uh, correlation that one is going to be innately healthier than the other. Well, that's quite the generalization. I think that there's plenty of vets that don't. Yes, <clears throat> but you got to find those vets. Yeah. They're not going to just like, uh, that's not, probably not going to be your first phone call. Correct. <laughs> so, okay. The other one, um, this is kind of like personal for me, but when we uh, when we bought the ranch, 
I really wish we could have approached becoming a part of the community differently, mm. specifically with our neighbors. And um, we did not do a good job. And I don't think we did a bad job. I just don't think we put any effort into it. I think we met the effort of our neighbors. We, yeah. We just like met that same level of energy. That's true. But I remember the two two things that honestly kind of set the stage for me was I remember the first time we went out there and we drove out to the gate. This uh, this man was like chasing us down the road in his little white shitty truck. And when we got to the gate and we opened it up, um, I think you got out because I was driving. You opened the gate and the man said, excuse me. I would like to speak to the man of the ranch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so he wouldn't even address you or acknowledge you as uh, like an owner. Um, or a decision maker. Operator. Or like, partner. Yeah. I mean, it was just super weird. Uh, and then the other thing that stood out from another neighbor, it was actually the guy we bought our ranch from, um, you know, after the transaction, I remember it was maybe the week afterwards, he called my phone and we were together. And I was like, looked at the caller ID. I was like, oh my gosh, Mr. I'm going to change his name. Mr. Um, Larmond is calling me and he must just want to follow up on the ranch, see how we're doing. I was so excited because I really wanted to build a relationship with him. And it was a butt dial. And you and I put on speakerphone and the guy was just talking so much shit about us as loud as he could Yeah, to his wife. And his wife was like the hype crew. The wife wanted it. It was like the excitement of the damn week. And so she was egging him on. And I just remember being like, they're the stupidest sons of bitches. They're going to raise bison. And she'd be like, yeah, yeah. Tell me what the bison are going to do. Like, <laughs> they're going to fuck up the pivot. Oh, my God. What about the age of their ranch manager? Oh, yeah. Oh, he's 22. Oh, she doesn't know shit. And it was just like 10 minutes. And I eventually hung up on him. But that was like the community. You were like, oh, this is where we live? Yeah. Cool. Th this is the guy that's been around multiple generations on that land, goes to the feed store every day, bullshits with all the good old boys. And so I think we... Um, we kind of like approached it wrong where we kind of got a, maybe a little bit more defensive about our position. It felt more like we were the new people on the block. We were there to like save the land and correct all the poor management decisions that had been made for a hundred years. Um, and I just don't think that was right. I think, I think we came across as probably a little arrogant, a little cocky and maybe not so much as a community member. I have a hard time thinking of myself as either of those words. So I'm like, nope, maybe you, but not me. <laughs> Sorry. I think, um, I think like we had said some pretty public and triggering statements that were published in, in like local magazines or newsletters where we oh were. Oh my God. I Do mean, you remember? Yeah. And like people got really upset about that. And, and I think what happened was. We were trying to express our disdain. I would even go as far as hatred towards chemical industrial agriculture, but the distinction wasn't made to where um, we weren't talking about like individuals attacking, yeah. who practice that way. Right. And so we kind of like people got their feelers hurt. Their identity was chemical industrial agriculture. I remember we got an email. 
from somebody that was insulted by us saying that people that, that, that people shouldn't use chemicals on their land. Oh, absolutely. And he was like clearly drunk because he wrote it at three o'clock in the morning. It was a little incoherent, but he was, I mean, it was like a novel. Yes. Trying to defend his family. And I think we could have just approached it a little differently. Me too. I think we should have made the distinction more, more clearly that we stand against chemical Big industrial chem, agriculture, yeah. but we always stand for the farmer and the rancher and the land steward, no matter what. And then there's a really good quote by Mark Twain that has been popping up lately that I always think about with this. And it's that loyalty to your country is a must or it's always, but loyalty to the government is only when it's deserved. And I kind of see that like with just being loyal to your neighbor being loyal to that land steward, even if they're misguided or have different perspectives, but never being loyal to the bigger chemical ag system, mm -hmm. which funds so much destruction globally. Mm -hmm. So if I could do it again, I would have like legitimately just been like, hey, all these people are going to talk shit about us, but let's invite them over for hot dogs. Hot dog. <laughs> couldn't have done anything else. It's true. We might, maybe we could have had some chili dogs. I don't know. Corn dogs Corn for the dog. kids. But we should have like just broke bread. Uh, it's true. Broke white bread. It's not too late. I always tell the scout it's not too late. It's not too and late. And maybe we just need to, on the next podcast, we're going to tell you guys about our uh, corndog hopping picnic. I don't even know what you're talking about. Oh, okay. We're it's gonna, not too late. We're going to do it. We're going to break bread. We, we're going to break corn Wednesdays. dogs. Yeah. Yeah. So, um... So, yeah, I think now we just don't really have much of a relationship with some of our neighbors. Some of our neighbors absolutely love us. Um, at least they say they do. Yeah. Maybe we don't hear that at the feed store. But uh, we don't go to the feed store. <laughs> the um, the kind of one, one really cool example is when we uh, when we first moved out to the ranch, we really wanted to lease more acreage to increase our impact and our footprint um, on this regenerative system. And so we went to two of our neighbors immediately and they were like, sorry, we've had the same grazing cattle lease in place for 25 years. You know, you, you guys drive a Prius. You're from Austin. You don't know shit about land. We still think you guys are nice, but we're just not interested. And uh, it took about six months for them to change that perspective. I feel like it was like maybe a year. Yeah. It's still a blip on the overall yeah. radar. And they saw not only that we were walking the walk, um, but that objectively, specifically, they could just be like at their fence line at the end of the day. Yeah. And it was just like Noah's Ark on our side. I mean, two of every species. Two of our elephants, giraffes. I mean, everyone was just getting ready for the flood and, and there was the loading <laughs> zone on our side. And then their side was just uh, like, a, like, like a dead... A dead, a dead horse just rotting and the, and the vultures wouldn't even eat it. And so I think <laughs> that that visual was just, uh, that helped us uh, obtain 300 more acres of leased land and build really great rapport with those neighbors. And they're, they're gangsters. I love them. I love having them. And they're not gangsters. Uh, I'm pretty sure that if uh, like a gang of, I don't know, Crips rolled up to our ranch, we could call both of them. And in the matter of minutes, they would be out there with 22s, 22 rifles. That's true. I don't know. <laughs> they would know what a crib is, but. Okay. Maybe they'll just, we'll have to organize the militia a little bit more. Yeah. Formally. Okay. Um, so reflecting on, on big, biggest mistakes, biggest opportunities, 
for other people not to do these things. Yeah. Do you have one? I know. You just flipped your paper over. I mean, I think we set out intentionally to have Rome Ranch be an operational ranch. So a functioning ranch, but we also had the intention for it to be an educational hub, like an inspirational place where people could go out, see the transformative potential of regenerative agriculture, be inspired, adopt those practices uh, regionally or locally, um, but then also bring people from communities. And so in that, with that being one of our goals, many times over the years, we've had um, people, agencies, sometimes fake news, like vice news, Uh Uh, reach out ahead of time, say, hey, we want to do this story. And Katie gave a little bit of this (laughs) sniff test and said, these people are horrible. Let's not bring them out to the ranch. But I I always default to like, hey, when you put your feet on this land and you meet the people that are caring for the animals and you see what we're doing, I don't care what perspective you come from, whether it's hardcore vegan, hardcore Uh, propagandists, hardcore fake news, it's going to transform you because somewhere in that hardened exoskeleton, you have a soul and this touches your soul. And uh, that that never happens. It's a nice perspective. Yeah, I want to believe. But um, I think in retrospect, we just are realizing that uh, a lot of these people have mental disorders. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. And it's just so... uh, you know, what you said, what did I have on my list? And I think uh, this actually goes quite well with uh, as a segue, because as you said, I did a sniff test and I said, nope. And you said, yep. And I, there's just been things, re- regret wise, there's been things that I reflect on that um, the reason why they happened is because I didn't fight hard enough or I didn't give it my full attention. Um and I let other people make the decisions for me or as out of default. And I guess that goes to the vet. It goes to you letting Vice News come out or whatever. And I don't know. I guess there's a balance between like trying to have respect for your perspective. Um, but then like standing my ground and being like, no, really, this bitch is a clown. <laughs> yeah, we should have... Uh... You're just referring to one clown specifically. Oh, yes. Um, and she probably doesn't have a job right now because her fake news agency, Vice News, is out of business. Oh, I think George Soros bought him. Well, Keep uh, going. that's just karma, honestly. Yeah. Uh, and so we're still here. We're still standing today. But that, that kind of stuff does hurt because you are putting yourself in a vulnerable situation. Like even though we want to share and we want to celebrate this message and, and, and the work that we're doing and so many other people are doing, this, this is still like, this is our life. This is our family. This is our home. This is somewhat of a piece of our identity. And so when, um, when you invite the wrong people uh, that bring the wrong intentions and the wrong energy, it really does hurt. It does hurt. And, that specific thing that we're referring to. I mean, it wasn't just sort of, it didn't just hurt, I feel like us personally, but I feel like it was sort of making fun of the other people that attended the event. Like it showcased them in a light that does not represent who they are at all. And so I, I don't know, I feel regretful that I would allow that to happen on our property. 
You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So would you invite, um, so if, uh, if PETA, the pedophiles wanted to come out to the ranch to have a tour, would you invite them? Would you let me if they wanted to film some videos? Only if you said, come on, <laughs> I'm going to change their minds. <laughs> what about if China wanted to come out to the ranch? Of course. They think they do come out to the ranch. Okay. I think China's there all the time. So you're cool with China coming out to the ranch? Of course. What about William Gates? <laughs> so he wants to make a documentary called Game Changers Part 2. <laughs> You're good with that? Seems like a good spot to so do So pretty it. much everyone is welcome. All are welcome here. Maybe. We're just, it's just hard because there's two of us. And so if we have, if we conduct a vote, that's just, we can get in a, a lock. We can get in a scuffle. Yeah. So we need a tiebreaker. It's true. Sometimes it's like, do I want to go to bed at 9 p.m. or is this going to be more like an 11 p.m. kind of conversation? Yes. And then that makes, sometimes has to make the decision. Yes. But you know, a lot of the, um, a lot of the lessons that we're, t that we've talked about today, they have caused, uh, physical pain, emotional suffering, distress, nights where you spent more than me have lost sleep. And I think there is something about just the human experience, how it's interesting, you know, we've, as a species, we've been around for 250,000 years and life before I don't know, the last hundred years was fucking hard to survive, to just live a week. There was no guarantees. I know. And so just think about what that must have felt like um, from the perspective of stress and struggle. And it's unimaginable, but I think there's something still within us that looks for that, that seeks that. But I don't think you have to have a hit piece from bias news to feel that way. I think you can just get in that cold plunge every morning. Yeah. Or get fucking shredded. Or get jacked. Creatine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need creatine to do that. Um, okay. So um, my, my last thing when I was reflecting on this episode, it's not the, it's kind of lame. So if you have something better, we can go for it. I don't know where you're going with it. Okay. I'll just do mine and then you can wrap it up with one of yours. But we, um, okay, so we just refused to buy a tractor for like two years mm -hmm. because when I think of tractor, I think of just destruction, green John Deere, just pulling like this big ass till and then unhooking the till and putting this big ass cedar, unhooking the cedar, putting a roller on it, and then just fucking dousing the land with chemicals. And it just, uh, like signified, represented everything we were against. So I felt for a long time we were like anti-tractor. Mm -hmm. And then we were also maybe a little bit mentally uh, unstable and we were like, we can do anything a tractor can do. <laughs> look, at the, look at these muscles. And I just remember we suffered rolling out hay. We already talked about that by hand, just poison, coating ourselves with chemicals. Uh, that was ridiculous. Uh, I remember we would just hand dig trenches. We'd roll out, I mean... Tens of thousands of pounds of water line. Yes. Just energy that was expended was like the Egyptians building the pyramids. I don't think it compares, but I was <laughs> I was thinking about like carrying. We used to be like, we're not using the mule or the tractor or whatever. And we would carry, we would in, insist on carrying buckets of like chicken or turkey food like half a mile. Yeah. Why? I mean, we're not Amish. No, 
I mean, I, I think that we were like, it's just a good, it's an extra workout for the day. Let's just, why not? But it really just wasn't a smart use of time. It was not. Um, and um, I just feel like when you think about tools, it's not the tool that's destructive. It's how you utilize the tool. Yeah, it's the human manager behind it. Isn't there some like Aldo Leopold quote? Where he talks about how you can use the same tools that were created to destroy. You can use them yes. to rebuild. Yeah, it's a famous conservation approach. It's like, I don't even want to try to remember this right now, but it's the axe. Uh, it's fire. It's axe, rifle, fire. And um, God, there's one other. But, you know, it's just like the whole uh, gun debate where people are like, guns are horrible. They're killing people. They're the cause of school shootings. And I don't, I'm not trying to get political, but it's, it's not the fucking gun. Like you can kill someone with a, a car or an ax as easy as you can a gun or this pen. And so it's always kind of comes back down to not the tool, but the, the human behind the tool. And so for me, that is just such a tool that I wish we would have invested in sooner. I remember the day we got a track after two years. It was just like, what have we been doing with our lives? <laughs> it was ridiculous. And we were even like planting cover crops and we would have to outsource that. Yeah, so someone else so would expensive. bring a tractor so in. Stupid. Yeah. And that guy, oh my gosh, bless his heart, Stuart. You remember Stuart? Mm -hmm. This son of a bitch. He all day long sat on a tractor and we asked him to do this cover crop, no till drill. And he was just like, y'all are, y'all are and saying, this is never going to work. You're loco. And he would just go out there begrudgingly and just slog along. And this poor guy, I mean, we used him for two years, two, three years. And every time we saw him, he had another form of cancer. Mm -hmm. You remember that? Mm -hmm. So yeah, sad. Really sad. So sad. And it was like such a obvious correlation to us. We're like this guy for a living contract, sit on a tractor, sprays, sprays all day long chemicals all day long he's exposed to it and every time we see him he's dealing with another kind of cancer yeah poor guy yeah it's pretty heartbreaking but um maybe in that retrospect if if we could buy another tractor we bought a used tractor would you buy a covered tractor fuck yeah or open air we went open air we went open air. I would get a covered tractor for sure yeah I thought covered tractors were for like uh, lazy people lazy people who just didn't want to interface with the environment. Like it was either too hot or too cold, or they just wanted to like, you know, jam out to which is Alan also Jackson, kind of fun. which is totally cool in climate control with their GPS. But that was, that was wrong. Yeah. Those people you are had smart. firsthand experience with that. <laughs> yeah. If you are rolling around with any heavy equipment in a pasture, you have the potential of running over a hornet's nest and those hornets can fuck you up. Why don't you tell the story? Okay. It uh, happened to me firsthand. Mm -hmm. I was rolling around in a beautiful, diverse pasture, and it was the end of day, and I parked, got out to look at a water line, and something hit me in the cheek. And I mean, it felt like, it felt like uh, if we were in the Amazon, and that happened, I would have thought one of the Untouchable Tribes members shot me with a, a poison dart frog <laughs> in the cheek, and it was sticking out of my cheek. That's what it felt like. And I just swatted it away like, ouch, that was horrendous. What happened? And then I look up and there's, I don't know, 100 wasps circling my head. And within the matter of probably three, four seconds, I got stung 
80 times because it was like tw- the wasps stung me. Each wasp stung me like two or three times all over my head and face specifically. So I ran for my life and it was so scary. And that night I got so sick laying in bed. I just started vomiting because of all the toxins that were put in my body from those wasps. But the uh, moral of the story is that's why these uh, good old boys ride around the tractors that are covered. So smart. Yeah. It actually makes a lot of sense. So they kick up those wasp nests and then they just kind of like get to have a really cool natural geographic That was a good learning lesson for us Um, in terms of like things that we regret doing or not doing. That was like a huge wake up call for us that we needed to have like emergency EpiPen kind of situation on hand because we had we have no idea who on our ranch or contractor, our kids or whatever might have like a serious fatal type of reaction to something like that. Yeah, that's a really good point. And even to that realization that we are responsible for our family out there, we, we can't rely on other people um, for incidents that are somewhat out of our control. I think we recognize too that fire was a oh. something we really needed to take more proactive risk mitigation. Yeah. And, and so that was something too, too late, too long, too many years went by, but now we are stocked with fire extinguishers in every vehicle on the tractor, in every shelter on the ranch, just always prepared for if we have that moment to do our best to uh, minimize damage. Damage. Yeah. Man. But I remember this really funny, uh, I remember the first time that we ever had a tractor, you were so excited to go out and try to field. Oh, I was so excited. And you didn't know how to drive the tractor. And so you were it like, was so bumpy. didn't change the gears and you were just blazing, hauling ass through this field left and right. And yeah, tractors, they don't have suspensions systems. So like it's all fixed. The wheels, how they articulate with the body of the vehicle is fixed. So it's a rough ride. And all these companies, all they do is they'll just put a little spring on the seat. Awful. And oh my gosh, it is a roller coaster ride. I remember I had to stop and go put a sports bra on (laughs) because I was bouncing. Yeah. I mean, you pee your pants if you have to pee. Mm -hmm. Um, So that, yeah, that I I remember looking at you and that, and you got an alternate personality name that day. I think I was Tractor Tracy that day. Tractor Tracy? I thought you were Ranch and Rhonda. Oh, Ranch and Rhonda. Yeah, I was Ranch and Rhonda. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first day that your alternate ego came out. Yeah. Ranch and Rhonda, where you got serious. Yeah. Um, okay, so those, that, that like tops my list of, uh, if, I, if I simplify it, to the things that uh, I would redo. Yeah. Um, that was a good list. Did you have one that you wanted to add or? No, I didn't. I thought they, I think that's a pretty good list. I feel like we talk about a lot of our um, oops moments in a lot of these ranch podcasts because it seems like that those are the most interesting. You could just gain so much perspective from the like, oops, I would have done that different moments. Yeah. People like uh, they, they slow down when there's a wreck on the side of the road. It's true. It's kind of a, it's kind of like a, we're manipulating people's psychology because we know that people like uh, stories of trauma. <laughs> um, but these are true stories. And I think. Just in summary, you know, we're always figuring things out. We are always evolving. We do not have all the answers. I think it's easy to, as someone new into agriculture or even multiple generations, you just want to do things differently to be intimidated and freak yourself out that 
you don't know what you don't know. And so you're not going to do anything. It's kind of like you're paralyzed with fear. But I would just encourage you to not be deterred by that because we don't have all the answers, but we're damn sure on our way to figuring out many of them. And so go out there, make mistakes. But have good intentions. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think as long as your intentions are really good and you're willing to learn from your mistakes and do your research, I think doing your own research is pretty critical. Yes. And asking the wise elders. Mm. Don't, don't be, uh, don't be in that silo of no age diversity. But don't have analysis paralysis either. Yeah. I will just say that failure builds character. Hardship shapes resilience and pressure makes you better. Because don't you know that's how diamonds are formed? I do now. Be a diamond. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, okay. Well, it was, it was nice uh, chatting with you. Nice chatting. Till next time. We don't usually get an hour to just talk to each other. Stories from We're the usually ranch. interrupted. Stories from the ranch. This is how we're going to do it from now on. Farewell. Bye-bye. All right, friends, I hope you guys enjoyed yet another episode. Take in that wisdom and incorporate it into your own journey. If I could have planted a tree for every mistake that I've made or planted a flower for every tear that Katie has cried, Rome Ranch would look like the Amazon jungle. And we don't want it to look like the jungle. We want it to be a savanna because that's what this ecosystem was hewn from. So we want to thank the sponsors of this podcast, Force of Nature. Thank you, Force of Nature. If you enjoy these episodes, if you want to give us a little nod, a little wink, a little sign of support, you can do that by heading over to forceofnature.com and checking out the many amazing regenerative products that we ship all over the country and all of those animals and all of their innate wisdom and all the life experiences that they have lived, they've also witnessed many mistakes, many errors created by land stewards such as us. But like the resilience of the North American bison, those land stewards prevail. They put their head down and they run into the storm, get to work. So that's forceofnature.com. Shifting gears a little bit, Um, We are getting into the cooler, I say cooler, quotation marks, air quotes, cooler season here in Central Texas. And um, that means that we are doing a lot of animal harvesting and butchering, some as a community, some for individual families and some for ourselves. And um, we did our first community bison harvest last week and we had an amazing guest who joined us. He flew from California to participate in the experience. And it was, he came with a note and the note was so beautiful. And I just want to read it. Um, Let me preface this with saying, I encouraged attendees ahead of the event to take some time and reflect on what it would look like to have a relationship with the animal in which they would soon come out to the ranch and harvest. And this friend took it to another level. He wrote this beautiful note and read this note to the animal, to the group, minutes after it was field harvested. So here it is. Dear friend, you and your ancestors have shaped the landscape and enriched humans' understanding of this land throughout time. 
I will never quite have the same connection you and your herd possess. However, I hope to honor your pivotal role in our inheritant and breathtaking ecosystem. I extend my deepest gratitude for your sacrifice. You're offering not just nourishment and sustenance for myself and others, but also serving as a profound example of the significance of your life and passing. I'd like you to know I am committed to using the energy generated from your body and spirit to continue to benefit the land, the animals, and the humans who inhabit it. I admire your bravery and appreciate the inspiration you provide us all. And then he found this amazing quote that says, Do not go gentle into the good night. Rage, rage, rage against the dying of the light. Until we meet again, Seth. Wow, such a powerful experience. Such a beautiful way to honor this animal. I just wanted to commemorate that bison and this individual. So that's it. Until we meet again, may you rage, rage, rage into the dying of the light.